You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Well, good morning again. This is not an easy, feel-good message this morning, despite the idyllic feeling of this psalm. And it's going to be difficult because the subject matter is families. And for some, family is the most wonderful subject on the face of the earth. And for some others, it is the most painful and difficult subject on the face of this earth. In either case, I want you to please be patient with the text and stay on the journey with the pilgrim in this psalm, in this Godward life represented in the Psalms of Ascent. And this is the ninth psalm in the Psalms of Ascent, a 15-part portion of the book of Psalms, 120 to 134. And rather than taking the time to paint in all the background and why it's helpful to us and provides a a framework for discipleship, I invite you to go back to any of the recent podcasts, or if you look all the way back to the first one, Psalm 120, it'll do the best to frame in the, the underpinnings of all that and why we're spending time on Sundays looking at these uh, psalms. And why on earth would the psalmist <clears throat> want us to think about family on our journey? Well, one practical reason is just like your nose, every one of us has one. Every one of us has a family, has come from a family, leads a family, is in a family. It's an inseparable part of the human journey. And families, you know, some people think families are the people you love that you would never pick for friends, (laughs) right? Uh, uh, Poet Ogden Nash said, a family is a unit comprised not only of children, but of men and women, an occasional animal, and the common cold. Yeah, Uh, that great patron saint of the church, Emo Phillips, said, when I was 10, my family moved to Donors Grove, Illinois. When I was 12, I found them. Patricia McCain shares her wisdom of family life. Never let an angry sister comb your hair. (laughs) Uh, David Frost said, having a child makes you a parent. Having two makes you a referee. Uh, The the comedic legend Bob Hope said, I grew up with six siblings. That's how I learned to dance, waiting for the bathroom. There's an advantage and a downside to big families. You learn to eat fast in a big family. Uh, the centuri- uh, you know, uh, the hundred-year-old co- comic genius George Burns said, "Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family who live in another city." <clears throat> Other comedians, we find wisdom in in the comic genius in our society, don't we? For the first, Jeff Foxworthy said, "For the first time ever, I was taking the family on the road, and we were staying with the in-laws, which on life's the." Life's list of experience ranks right below sitting in a tub full of scissors. Not not really comfortable. And then uh, Frederick Nietzsche, that stoic theologian of the early part of the last century, said, Family love is messy, clinging, and an annoying and repetitive pattern, just like bad wallpaper. Well, 
We know that family life has its issues. But this psalm presents such an idyllic family and family life that it feels almost unbelievable. I mean, it's chock full of blessing and fruit and prosperity and peace. I mean, clearly the author of this psalm has never watched Oprah or Dr. Phil. We have even to wonder if the writer of this psalm even read their Bible. I mean, the story of Abraham and Sarah or David and his wives hardly lives up to being a sales job for godly families. So one helpful way to see what this psalm is really trying to communicate to us is to look at it through the lenses of what the ancient church taught about marriage. And it's summed up in the Latin phrase, Fides et sacramentum. The idea was that in marriage and family, there is a blessing to be believed, fides, and a blessing to be received, sacramentum. And that's the outline of this talk this morning. This ancient summary of the Bible's teaching about the sanctity of of marriage and family was in direct response to the pagan world's much more fluid but subsequently less stable concepts of marriage. Likewise, this psalm is not pretending that God-fearing families are all perfect, but it is advocating for their, for your blessing. It's not saying, if you go to church or say your prayers or do this or that, that you and your household will always be blissfully happy. Instead, it's saying, first, believe the blessing of fearing the Lord and then receive the blessing from the Lord. Okay, let's jump in. First, believe the blessing of fearing the Lord. First four verses. We heard them just a minute ago. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We're going to unpack that in a second. Who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. I mean, who wants that? I want that. Don't you want that? I mean, the same person wants that. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine, Within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, we understand uh, the whole orientation of that world. It doesn't mean that wives or females are second place or anything, it's just in the cultural context. So, hold with me. Verses one and four, one to four, are proclaiming the blessings of fearing God so that you might believe it and fear God yourself. Here's how it is, the the psalmist saying. Blessing comes from fearing God. Fruitfulness is the result of fearing God. So the question is, will you believe that? Will you accept it? And will you live like it says? It concludes, behold, 
Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord, verse 4. So that blessing obviously comes from fearing the Lord. So what do we mean when we say blessing? In the Bible, blessing is being deeply contented because you're living in a state that God says is the best way to live. So the blessing is both declarative, this is the best way to live, and experiential, this is the happy or content way to live. The psalm says that both the state and the experience of being blessed comes from fearing God. It doesn't say blessed is everyone. It doesn't say blessed are those with you know, above average IQ, which is every one of you. Blessing is not for those who are good-looking or rich. Blessing is upon those who fear God. Verse 1 specifically describes what it means to be someone who fears the Lord. Those who fear the Lord are those who walk in his ways. So a God-fearing person and a God-fearing family walk in God's ways, which means they follow what God teaches. Jesus makes the very same point when he says that those who genuinely love him will be those who do what he says. And in John 14, 21, it's recorded, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Fearing God is not a bumper sticker. It's a behavior. Now, that description of fearing God and loving Jesus could be an encouragement to you if you grew up in some kind of family, particularly some kinds of religious families that were not nearly as good or fun as it's described here in Psalm 128. Because the Bible defines fearing the Lord as walking in his ways, and those who do not walk in his ways do not fear God. Therefore, this blessing of Psalm 128 is only for those who genuinely fear God, not for all those who simply say they fear God, but don't truly obey him and therefore fear him. The four verses here describe the blessing of a God-fearing family. From fearing God, verse 2, comes fruitful, fruitful labor, not meaningless toil, and being blessed, and that is, so that it shall be well with you. Fearing God. It's not an amulet or a spell or magic pixie dust on your life. But given that God is revealed in the Bible. God is creator, sustainer, and provider of all things. To walk in his ways over time, all things being equal, does create a life of joy and fruitfulness. And this is the normal blessings of fearing God. Of course there can be blessing in suffering. And in a fallen world, there's always potential for disappointment, especially if you're an Iowa State fan. And we, yes, we must balance 
the teaching here of this book with other books like Job or Habakkuk. But we cannot mute this psalm entirely. There is wheel. There's real blessing, Wabbit. There's real blessing in fearing God. Also, from fearing God comes the blessing of a wife or a spouse who is like a fruitful vine, verse 3. Shall not be unfulfilled, repressed, barren, or bitter, but flourishing. Now, some things in life make childbearing impossible. I understand that. This word about fruitfulness encompasses the whole person, not just the womb. But those blessed with children, it says, your children are going to be like olive shoots, which doesn't really mean a lot in our culture. But when you prune back an olive tree, the shoots appear and grow really fast. So if it was written today, it said, you know, your kids will grow like weeds. You know the difference between a weed and a flower? Yeah, location. Uh, your kids are growing like, like weeds, like flowers. It's communicating life and abundance and fruitfulness. Then the psalm summarizes the point of believing the blessing of fearing God by asserting, Behold, thus shall a man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now let's get super practical with this stumbling-causing kind of phrase, fearing the Lord. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Let's get really practical. Tell me of a food that you really hate. Somebody. I mean hate, not dislike. Hate. You will never eat it. What? Lima beans. Cauliflower. Whatever. Liver. Liver and onions. What? Beets. These are unpopular foods. Yeah. Poor beets. Okay, lima beans. Nate. Um. got a nice, warm, steaming bowl of lima beans. Would you eat them for five bucks? You don't hate them. All right. Justin, uh, liver and onions, big plate, five bucks, 50 bucks, 500, five grand, 50 grand, half a million. All right. You see, we never do something we hate until forced to by a higher power. In this case, the desire for a cool half a million tax-free deposited into his bank account in the Bahamas. Right? Now let's get really practical and really gross. Instead of a plate of liver and onions or lima beans, let's say it's a plate of warm, steaming manure. Would you eat it for five grand? Fifty grand? A half a million? (laughs) They say, give me a spoon. 
There we are back at the, at the higher power. But no, you would, and would you take it and would you, would you, you know, put it in your hair? Would you? No, you wouldn't. Why? You hate it. The decision is made before the question is asked. That's what this means to fear the Lord. The decision is made before. So I want to apply this very practically to family life. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but it still needs to be mowed. Listen to me. Adultery. Adulterous affairs are nothing more than a cruel, punishing mirage and an egregious lie. Adultery is like dying of thirst in the desert and seeing a shimmery oasis and using your last strength to crawl to it and only end up with a mouth full of sand. Because affairs always begin with excitement. If they didn't, they wouldn't happen. But eventually, the thrill is gone. And you end up looking back, wishing you'd stayed for the children's sake. Cambridge University research clearly shows that children of divorced parents, and hang on, don't rush to conclusions, hold on for the whole of this talk, that the children of divorced parents are damaged more by the divorce than they are by the death of a parent. And I don't mean to condemn you if you are the child of divorced parents or if divorce has touched your, your life in any way. Hold on to the whole thing. The beauty of the gospel is that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, can redeem anything and everything. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Nonetheless, I want this morning to put a very strong barrier in front of everyone and anyone because we are all faced with temptation. Adultery, Proverbs teaches, and adultery is having sex with anybody you're not married to. Uh, adultery, Proverbs teaches us, is like scooping fire, ironically, into your lap. And it burns and wounds and scars and destroys. Proverbs 6, 27, 28, great follow-up thing. And the internet just makes it all that much more easy to live, you know, a fantasy life that doesn't really involve any kind of, you know, actual literal. But gang, as somebody who spends their life picking up the debris of destroyed lives, that stuff is even, at, on some levels, more insidious and damaging to the relationship. I mean, Job warns us, says, you need to make a covenant with your eyes. 
And that's not just for guys, but guys, if the shoe fits. Because all of it, all of it eventually fades into darkness. Yeah, but Tom, you know, even in faithful marriage, after a while, the thrill fades out. On some levels, that's, that's hard to argue with. I like what Agatha Christie, the myth, mystery writer, said. Uh, she said, the ideal husband is an archaeologist. The older the wife gets, the more interesting she find, he, he finds, more interesting she is to him. Quotes are always best if you don't butcher them. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't live in a fantasy world. We live in the w- real world. A real world... of the linchpin of family is commitment. It's a no matter what kind of promise. Believing that at the end of life, just as in the beginning, family is the place for fruitfulness for your children's children, says verse 6. But it's more than individual temptation. Right? There's collective things, particularly that we see it in our day. It's the whole of Western society that's been, being influenced away from the biblical model of marriage. And I know I'm going out on really thin ice on this stuff. Our society is saying that the, that the biblical model is not for blessing and fruitfulness, but rather for repression and cursing. All right, if you don't take what the Bible says, let's just look honestly at the data. Harvard sociologist Carl Zimmerman, in his classic book, Family and Civilization, which was written, ironically, in 1947, predicted inevitable social decay resulting from undermining traditional models of families. And in it, he developed 11 steps, which include... Marriage losing its sense of sacredness in a culture, which leads to the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony being lost, which then leads to increased public disrespect for parents, acceleration of juvenile delinquency, growing acceptance of other models of relationships, and increasing crime and sexual complications. How incredibly prophetic. He was looking forward. How about somebody that looked back? 250 years ago, Edward Gibbon, in his classic work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, gave a very similar list concerning cultural decay. He said, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home would lead to increased taxes and spending of public money for bread and circuses. That's a fun one to look around the world and see if whether or not what he said was true. A mad craze for pleasure. He even predicted that sports would become all the more exciting and brutal and the building of gigantic armaments when the real enemy is the moral decadence of the people and the decay of religion and faith fading into mere form. And Gibbon was no proponent, by the way, if you know anything about him, of Christianity in the least, yet his look back was incredibly accurate about the world that we live in 250 years later. More recently, sociologist Mark Regnerus 
has studied the psychographic pressure to cohabitate as opposed to marrying and its damaging results on society. He argues that men are naturally motivated by a desire to provide, protect, and procreate. However, since 1971, the income of American young men has declined, adjusted for inflation, by an average of 21%. And that only 43% of American graduates are men. This means that the connection between productive work and procreation is being whittled down year over year. So if you're interviewing for your next job, your first job, if you're still in college or just out and you're going after that first job, negotiate your salary and tell them, look, the future of American society is in peril here if you don't start me good. Anyway, sorry. Demographically then, some men are simply not going to marry, and economically, some men cannot marry, so they believe the combination encourages cohabitation. Therefore, men are becoming increasingly unmotivated to protect or provide. Okay, one more. Finally, consider the Journal of Marriage and Family, and not a religious journal at all, discovered that those who live together before they're married are 21% less likely to stay together after they're married. And I'm laying all of this out simply because I care about you. I care about the world we live in. I want to show you that the postmodern idea that we can reinvent our sexuality, that we can reinvent the model of families and have, that has no negative impact on civilization is horribly miscued and misguided from the very beginning. So then, by contrast, I want you to look at the blessing of this psalm for the family, for, for, for Zion, verse 5, that's God's people, for your children's children, and the progress of the gospel down through generations is true and can be believed. The psalm is asking you to believe this blessing of marriage and family for those who fear God. And then it's asking you not only to believe it, but then it's inviting you to receive it. Believe the blessing of God and receive the blessing of God. Look at the last two verses. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Verses 5 and 6 are inviting us to receive the blessing that verse 1 to 4 just described. Verses 5 and 6 begins... Here it begins with a prayer for the pilgrim to be blessed. The Lord bless you from Zion. The first part's asking you to believe the blessing. The second part asking you to receive the blessing described in the first part. If fearing God is that good, if family is that blessed, then may God give you that blessing. So we have the fides of verses 1 to 4, and now we come to the sacramentum of verses 5 and 6. The psalm is asking God Almighty to bless you and your marriage and your family. Not a list of six steps 
of how to have a better family. It's not saying that all the marriages and families that follow what's laid down here are going to be perfect or painless or pristine. That if you do this, that your life will be like the life of that friend who sends you that letter every Christmas. I mean, nobody's life could be that great, right? We're happy that Charlie was admitted to Harvard at only 12 years old. He was disappointed he only got the Fulbright scholarship. You know, that Mary Lou, you know, gymnasticked her way to another gold medal and on and on and on it goes. No. Even though, and you know, you fight being jealous even though if you wrote an honest letter about your family's life, there would be people who would find it very enviable. But five and six, verses five and six are not that Christmas letter telling you how blessed everything already is. They're a heartfelt prayer asking God Almighty to bring his wonderful blessing unto you and yours. It's not a list of how-tos. That if you, you know, follow these six verses, everything's going to be great. Instead, the psalmist <clears throat> knows we live in a broken, fallen world, and even the best of families face brokenness from time to time, a brokenness that the how-to guides never, ever fixes. And you got to remember this about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a prayer book. It's not a rule book. And it describes the blessing for those who fear God in verses 1 and 4. Now it asks for that blessing because marriage is a sacramentum. It means it's sacred. Marriage, you just want to get married. You can go to the courthouse and get a thing and have a judge marry you and enter into a civil contract. But the state doesn't award holy matrimony. That is a sacrament. That is a function. That is a grace. That is an outward sign of an inward work only those that fear God in the church. And it's that way because marriage, your marriage, is meant to be the whole story of the Bible in miniature. You see... In one way, you have to read verses 5 and 6 in light of the whole story of the Bible for it to make any sense. And that story begins in the garden where marriage was good and blessed, but love was rejected and love was spoiled, but love pursued the rebel by willing sacrifice in a different garden named Gethsemane, and one day there's going to be another perfect marriage in heaven. And all of that means that your very own, your very normal, your very human, your very complicated marriage is intended to be both a mystery and a sacrament. Both pointing, as Ephesians 5.32 points out, the mystery of this sacred marriage with a man and a woman and with everyone and God through his son Jesus Christ. Your family can be a place of such sacredness, a zone of sacramentum where the Lord's blessing resides if you fear him by walking in 
his ways. You see, that's why family is meant to be sanctuary, sacred and safe. And I know, and you know, no family is perfect, and every family has its struggles and its complications. And if you believe the blessing described here and ask God's blessing on your family, it doesn't mean that your family will be pain-free or perfect or endlessly pleasurable. But if you believe the truth of verses 1 to 4 and receive the blessings of verse 5 and 6, it will make all the difference in the world. It'll mean blessing for you, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren, and Zion, God's people. A blessing for your family, your church, your progress of the gospel down through generations, your generations yet to come. But I can't dig all this up without spending some time right here at the end talking about divorce. And if divorce has touched your life. Because far too often in the church, divorce is viewed as some kind of scarlet letter, a permanent demotion to second class. If that's you, I want you to hear two very clear truths in these final minutes. Number one, this is part of your past. You're part of a divorced couple. If your parents were, your grandparents, I don't care where. If it is, know this. Number one, God is not mad at you. And number two, God identifies with you. Oh, yes. Look at Jeremiah 3, verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and I sent her away because of all of her adulteries. So if I ask this room and God himself were seated in one of these chairs and I said, if you've been divorced, would you please stand? God himself, creator of the universe, would stand and self-identify as a divorcee. He knows what it's like for the love of his life to be unfaithful. But the beautiful thing is the story doesn't end there. The entire Bible is the unfolding of this great, epic, romantic, troubled relationship between God and his people. How he bridged the gap. How he restored the relationship through humbling himself, coming into our world, living perfectly, loving completely, opening the door all the way up to his kingdom and took into himself on the cross all of the fault, guilt, shame, 
torment, alienation, rejection, abuse, pain, horror, and sin done by you and me. All of it. So that he could restore our divorced from God's selves into his indescribable love, mercy, and grace. And it doesn't end there. On the third day, when he rose from the grave in power and glory to destroy all of the power of all of the sun, all of the sin, not just the sin done by you, but the sin done to you. So that no longer do we have to be the victim of sin, but to overcome sin through the power of the resurrection. In the cross, God forgives us of all, the sun, all of the sin done by you. And in the resurrection, he overturns all of the sin done to you. Man, if that didn't deserve a cheer section. So today, if divorce is in your past, I want to encourage you to let him use that pain and that sorrow. Allow him to fashion it into a new set of lenses through which only you can look and only you can see some aspects of his glory. And if you're in the midst of a tormented situation and divorce seems to be looming on the horizon, I want you to reach out for help. Because sometimes the hardest thing about trusting God is thinking we're having to trust God all by ourselves. First of all, he identifies with you and understands it deeply, empathetically, sympathetically, knows. And he shows us that he can be trusted just like the son trusted the father going to the cross. And I want to encourage you that nothing, I don't care what it is, I don't care what it is. Nothing can separate you ever from the love of God in Christ. I don't care how complicated it is. Nothing can separate you. Plus, we're here for each other, and we're here to help each other. If something about this is resonating in you, grab me afterwards. Grab anybody. We're here to help or text or email or anything. Because, look, if, if today you recognize that you've unfriended God, you click the unfollow button, you turn or you walked away, or so you believe. But something inside wants more than anything else to know that you're loved that you're approved of, that you're good. And you want his forgiveness, his reconciliation, his 
is restoring, restoration. You want back in the relationship. I'm not going to argue whether or not you were ever out of it in the first place, but here's the thing. If you want back in, just look to the Father and say, because of what Jesus did about healing the relationship, please accept me. And he will. He's never turned his back on you. He's waiting for you to turn back to sin, to him. So that his peace can be not only upon Israel, as the last verse of the psalm says, but also upon you. Peace be upon you. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.